0: Welcome to Radiant Church, my name is Andrew, I'm the lead pastor and we're so glad you could join us today from wherever you're watching or listening from. If this is your first time joining us, hey, go to RadiantChurchSC.com and click I'm new. If you fill out that short form online for us as a way of saying thank you, we're going to donate $5 to one of the nonprofits that's listed. We're in the middle of a long study in the book of Daniel, and we covered the first two chapters so far, and part of chapter three, which is last week. In Daniel chapter one, we learned that when culture shifts, we need to stay firmly rooted in God. And then we turn to Daniel chapter two and learn that God is wise and powerful, and He's gonna usher in a kingdom which will never end. And then last week we got our feet wet in Daniel 3. And we peeled back at the curtain to look at the real conflict taking place, which was the battle over worship. God's motivation for worship is love. The enemies Motivation for worship, man—it is always fear. But this week we're going to shift to the story itself. Now we read through uh, verse number six last week, and we learned that Nebuchadnezzar had built a statue ninety feet high, and he commanded everyone to worship the statue when the music—the the worship music began to play. So let's pick it up in verse number seven of chapter three. Okay. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race, or nation, or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped the gold statue statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But some of the astrologers, and these are the advisors, by the way, who who were kind of like Daniel and his friends, and they worked with these guys, uh, they went to the king and informed on the Jews. This is really intentional on their part. We're gonna get to why in just a minute. Look at verse number nine. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king, you issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the lyre and the harp and the pipes and other musical instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you've put in charge of the province of Babylon, and they pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue that you have set up. Let's stop for a moment uh, and talk about what's, what's kind of taking place here. These advisors who at this point have been working with Daniel and his buddies here for a number of years now, they bring the case to Nebuchadnezzar's attention regarding Shadok, Meshach, and Abednego. And they specifically mentioned those three and accuse them of not bowing in worship. Now, if you're like me, when, you, you know, when you're reading through Scripture and you see that kind of thing, it makes you wonder about, like, all the other folks who, who, who weren't bowing, <laughs> right? Like, what, what about those guys? And, and were there other Jews who were present? And if they were, did they bow too? And if they didn't, like, how come they weren't singled out? And by the way, like, where is Daniel in all of this? Every time you read through Scripture, through the Bible, okay, whether it's devotion or study or whatever, ask a lot of questions. Ask questions that seem crazy, ask questions that makes sense, ask ones that are kind of like, oh, I'm not so sure, like ask them why, because the more questions you ask, the more critical your thinking becomes as you read, and you develop a mind which is far more open and pliable to what God would want to show you than you would be if you simply read and just turn to the next page. So as you're reading, it's important to walk that, that tightrope rip attention too that you see in scripture. I think sometimes we can read between the lines and we get information which certainly may have taken place, and other times, you know, we just can't do that but regardless you have to be careful about making assumptions from what's missing so we can't assume that all the jews uh, who may have been present were worshiping the statue and we can't assume that these three were the only ones who refused to worship and we can't assume that daniel was present or even you know daniel was absent because we don't know and there aren't enough clues or breadcrumbs to lead us to a likely answer so back to the story all right Notice when these three friends take a stand, they do it quietly. So it's not like they're trying to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. You know, they didn't organize anything. They didn't create a scene. They just simply continued to live out their faith in a consistent manner, the way they had done every day. They understood if they were to bow and worship, it would be a denunciation of who God is. So they simply refused to bow and worship without causing a massive wreckage. They're just not going to do it. Now, we get some hints. In the text, a little breadcrumbs here, right? About the advisor's motivation. Now, these are the clues I was talking about earlier when you read through scripture. In verse number 12, they specifically mention Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by name. And they explicitly mention it was Nebuchadnezzar who put these three in charge of the province of Babylon. They're taking verse 49 from chapter 2, and they're pointing right back to what happened in a very detailed manner. Maybe they were fueled by jealousy. We don't really know, okay? But maybe it was jealousy, you know, watching these foreign guys of a conquered little nation like Judah rise so quickly in the king's court in positions of power. Um, we're not sure, but but we know this. They were they were 100% against <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they appealed to Nebuchadnezzar's vanity, crafting the disobedience of the three friends to be this real offensive affront to who the king is, and it works, like Nebuchadnezzar reacts just like they thought he would. So you read in verse number 13 that, that, that King Nebuchadnezzar, he flies into a rage, and he has the three friends brought in front of him where he demands they worship. Now, in part one of this teaching last week, we looked at the battle over worship and as idolatrous worship, right, which is being forced on everybody. But here at play, we also see something else. We see loyalty come into the picture. Would they be loyal to the king to the point where they would compromise their own faith? Now, I want to take a minute and just pause where we are and kind of look at our world here today, okay? Loyalty. Think about Loyalty. It is absolutely in demand right now, and it's in demand everywhere, you can't escape it. Whether it's politics, or healthcare, or business, there is a demand for your loyalty at all costs. And over the last few years, I've watched a lot of folks who compromise on a whole host of issues and principles, even their faith, out of loyalty. Be careful as we move into the future, because I think in the coming years, certainly in the coming decade, we're only gonna see the demand for your loyalty sharply increase. Don't compromise your faith. Don't don't compromise your principles and values that are rooted in God's kingdom simply for loyalty to a business or ideology or political leader or even a party. Like your first and only loyalty as a follower of Christ is the King Jesus and nobody else. Remember that. So the pinnacle question that's at the heart of the story, it comes in verse number 15. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, and listen to what he says. He says, I'm going to give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue that I have made when you hear the song of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? That's the quintessential question. I don't want to jump too much into this because uh, Daniel 4, we'll get into next week, deals of pride, but the enemy always overplays his hand. In his arrogance, he's always undone. And Nebuchadnezzar is about to find this out right here and now. Now look at the response that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego give. Look at verse number 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, Oh Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us and he will rescue us from your power, your majesty. Now that sounds really good. You can kind of want to jump up and down and just, yeah, all right. That's kind of like the response you want. And we like that a whole lot. We like to stand. The friends are taken. They're confident in God's ability to save them. We know they're confident. They're doing the right thing. And there's no doubt we think they're going to walk out unscathed, right? I think that's the problem with a lot of our theology today. Like we stop at verse number 17. We believe God's always going to come through. We believe God's always going to save. We believe bad things can never happen to us. And if they do, well, you know, we didn't do something right. After all, why would God allow something bad to happen to those who love him, especially those who are taking a hard stand for him, right? But these three friends don't embrace that kind of worldview. And they finish with this in verse 18. Check this out. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, Your Majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you've set up. So they recognize that God may not save them, and they're okay with that. If you've heard this story before, you're, you're, you're probably you know blown light through it, never thought twice about a couple important things that I want to slow down a little bit and just consider here today. For starters, their response shows us the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They trust God's will. Perhaps God will save them. What if he doesn't? People have made courageous stands for God all throughout history, but it's rare that we hear of God doing the miraculous to save them from suffering and death. Is that because there wasn't enough faith? No. Um, Was it because God was not able to save each person who faced suffering? No, no, that's not true. He absolutely could. Did he choose to do so nine times out of ten? He chose not to. We don't have an explanation as to why God chose not to save so many people throughout history, but God just in his wisdom said, no, it doesn't make him less God. It doesn't make him heartless. If God chooses not to deliver you or save you or step up for you in any way that you hope that he will, it's not because you're some kind of bad person and it's not because he's not God or cold hearted. You and I have to be comfortable as Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were with trusting God's will for our lives, even if it results in something we don't want to see happen. But here's the second thing that's a little more theological in nature, okay? Um, It's unlikely that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had a solid understanding of the resurrection. So Old Testament theology does not clearly define the afterlife as we understand it here today. It's more implicit than explicit. In fact, Daniel 12, which we'll get to at the end of this, really holds the first like, primary explicit teaching on this topic, and that occurs way after this event, many years later. So there's no like, hey guys, it's okay, we'll be with God forever, hooray. Like, the reality of heaven was not what well, we know it uh, for them, which should change your perspective a little bit right? Because it, it, it makes what they do even more courageous than you probably realized before. Look at verse number 19. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious to shout at Meshach and Abednego. His face became distorted with rage. The original language, Aramaic says the image of his face literally changed towards them. Like there was a physical change. He commands the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he orders some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. Verse 21. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants and turbans and robes and other garments. And because the king, in his anger, had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames actually killed the soldiers who threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell in into the roaring flames. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and he exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Well, then look, Nebuchadnezzar shouts, I see four men, they're unbound, walking around the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar, came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace, and he shouted out, Shout out Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Come out. Come here. So shout out Meshach and Abednego stepped out of the fire, and the high officers and officials and governors and advisors crowded around them, and they saw the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed. Their clothing wasn't scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Pretty cool story. Quite the miracle, right? Now, if God wanted, He could have just extinguished the flames and prevented the deaths of the soldiers, and this whole ordeal with these guys could be completely over with before it even started, right? But He doesn't do that. Instead, God chooses to save them in the fire, not from the fire. None of us want to endure suffering or terrible events, right? Like, we all want to try to pray our way out of those, but I think many times, God allows us to endure pain and suffering and heartache because there's so much we've got to learn. And we endure pain, it puts us in a season of growth and a season of, you know, where what comes out of that suffering will sometimes play a massive role in shaping who we are and and who we're going to become. You can either be humbled or hardened in a season of suffering. You can grow or you can die. You can learn or you can regress. You know, forest fires are, are, are dangerous. We, we, we know that. We try to stamp out forest fires every chance we get. But forest fires are vital and necessary for a healthy ecosystem. Every forest fire burns up dead vegetation, the underbrush which has become overgrown. And then it provides rich soil that's perfect for new growth to take place in the aftermath. Those fires are important because a forest can't grow and expand if it doesn't have that season of suffering. Seasons of suffering, while not welcomed by us at all, for sure, right, are important for our lives. They're going to come, and you can't stop them. In fact, I would tell you this, the more you try to stop suffering, the more harm you actually end up inflicting on yourself in the long run. Some people really believe that following Christ helps prevent them uh, from from suffering all kinds of things in adverse seasons of suffering, but Jesus didn't come so we could escape the experience of suffering. He came so we could have victory over it. Remember that the next time you walk in a difficult season, God may not save you from the fire, but He can save you in the fire. And so Nebuchadnezzar is completely bought in here. He sees God is in charge. He sees God is powerful, more so than any other deity the Babylonians worship. Remember they're polytheists here, okay? So shout out Meshach and Abednego. They see the God of their ancestors at work here too. You know, Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses describes God as Israel's deliverer who rescued them from the fire-smelting furnace of Egypt. To make them a special possession. And so God has stepped up again in another foreign land, where his people are once again oppressed, and he's delivered them this time from a literal furnace. Okay, the story wraps up like this. Uh, Look at verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servant who trusted in him. They defied the king's command. They were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make this decree, that if any people, whatever their nation or race or language, speak a word against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they'll be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other god who can rescue like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar has not completely committed himself to following God yet. Uh, This is not a salvation response. The the Babylonians are polytheists, so they believe a lot of different gods. He's recognizing God as the most powerful of the gods. Uh, But yet again, he sees God exert his power, and we're going to find out next week in Daniel chapter 4 that there's one more experience he's going to have, and then he'll, he'll finally figure it out. He'll go all in at that point. But we're not there just yet. We'll get there next week. So we learned a couple of important truths so far in the story. We've learned you know, that we need to trust God's will. We, we, uh, as hard as that might be, we you know, we got to do that. We also learned something else, too. That God may save us in the fire... But he's not going to save us from it all the time. And I want to take a little bit more time, too, to wrap up, you know, chapter three with our focus and attention again on worship. We covered worship in part one of this teaching, and if you missed it, you've got to go back and watch and listen to it, okay? But, but behind every form of idolatry, whether it's statues or addictions or revenge or power or influence, is self. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego valued themselves and their careers, they would have submitted. It's easy to talk about faith and courage and a refusal to compromise until you're given the opportunity to compromise your faith and advance your career, influence, or social standing, isn't it? You ever wonder how folks can change so much the more they advance? Well, well this is how, right here, an idolatry of self. You can imagine being in their shoes? The pressure they must have felt had to been unreal. They can bow and worship just this one time, you know, just this once, and then get on with their lives. They can do what they're supposed to do just this once. It won't affect their livelihood or their careers. It might even help their career, right? Because the next time they get a shot to advance in the king's court, they might, you know, get that promotion because, hey, they followed suit. Now, they don't really believe in the mumbo-jumbo stuff about worshiping a statue. God knows their hearts. They can, you know, do it. It's okay. Just one time. They could have done that. They could have. And I surmise many people in our day and age live with that mindset. The mindset that says, "You know what? It's fine. Like God knows my heart. He knows where I stand. It's okay to do this just this one time. It's okay to do it for my family. It's okay to do this for my career. It's okay to do this just this one time. I'll be fine. I'll be good." But as we said earlier, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego—they knew that even the slightest compromise in their faith would result in a complete denunciation of who God was. There's no partial commitment to following the Lord. You're either all in or you're just not in at all. And while that doesn't seem fair, especially since many of us, myself included here, okay, had a spiritual journey which was a process, okay? Um, that fact still rings true. You're either all in or not in at all. And if you go on in for Christ, you can't elevate yourself. It can't be about you, no matter how worthy the justification might seem. It's about God. Nietzsche famously remarks that God is dead. Now that statement's more complex than we tend to treat it. It's not a blanket admission of atheism. He wasn't attempting to erase God. Uh, There were multiple things he was actually trying to convey with that statement. One of them though was this, when we elevate ourselves to the place of the divine, we become engulfed with an idolatrous individualism. So our concern becomes ourselves. And we take more and more of God's place in our lives, we become more concerned about us, the ultimate form of idolatry. When we become God, we create our own meaning. And that always leads to cultural and individual death. Whenever mankind has elevated himself to God, okay, death and destruction has always followed. Never fails. In the coming years, I think self-preservation is going to be important. Our world's undergoing massive change, change we have never experienced in our lifetimes, change our parents, our grandparents have never experienced. The next decade or so will have change on a scale far more in line with the dynamic change the Industrial Revolution brought, okay? In the midst of all this massive change we're going to walk through, people will look out for themselves en masse. They're going to want stability in a sea of chaos. They're going, to, they're going to compromise wherever they can ensure their own survival. So the temptation to do what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have done, it's going to be great. And no, you won't be looking up a 90-foot-tall statue. I don't even think you're going to be staring death in the face. But there's going to be real world consequences and difficult things you're going to have to endure for not compromising on your faith. And the justification is going to come fast and it's going to come from multiple sources. People even respect and admire are going to tell you, hey, it's your family. It's your kids. It's your job. It's your house. You just got to do it. Do it this one time. Just this one time and get over it. Okay. When those days come and they will not tomorrow, maybe not even next year, but they are going to come. Maybe do the right thing. And we have the same courage that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to trust God's will and believe that He can save us even in the fire. And we stand firm doing the right thing without compromise. And who knows, you may influence and impact countless lives in the process where others see Jesus in your midst and how you live your life because you refused to compromise. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your goodness and your grace. What an incredible God that we serve. Lord, for all those who are listening and watching here today, I pray that you would encourage them, strengthen them. Lord, when seasons of temptation come, times of temptation hit, or we have a choice, we can compromise our faith or stand. Lord, I pray that we choose standing for you and with you and in you every single time, and we choose not to compromise. May we follow the example of these three friends and stand firm in our convictions and our, our our principles, God, that are rooted within you and who you are, for your kingdom and for you, in your glory. When the seasons of suffering come, Lord, I pray you be reminded today that that we're suffering for for. You know, a reason for growth, right? For, for learning, for shaping us into who we're supposed to be and who we need to be. It's not for not. It's not for nothing, right? These seasons of suffering come to shape and mold who we are. Lord, I pray that we, you know, we just start, you want to say we embrace the suffering because none of us are going to do that. But I, I pray that we have an understanding when the suffering comes that it's you who's guiding us and leading us and. A God, new growth in life will come out of that season of suffering that we're enduring. Lord, I pray that we trust your will. We may not know what tomorrow holds. We may not know, God, what standing for you and refusing to compromise might bring. It could bring all kinds of trouble to us, but may we trust you and your will no matter what we face. Lord, I pray in the future and what lies ahead and where humanity's heading, where we're going as a people, Lord, I pray that we have the courage as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to stand firm for you in the face of cultural compromise. May we not bend or break. May we firmly be rooted in you and who you are. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We ask all this in your name. Amen.